You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. everyone. Welcome to episode 108 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Y'all have been so patient as we've used the last three episodes to set the stage for the battle between the Monitor and the Virginia. But now that the stage has been well and truly set, this week we finally get to the clash of the ironclads. After their successful sortie out into Hampton Roads on Saturday, in the pre-dawn darkness of Sunday morning, March 9, 1862, the Virginia's officers examined their ship. The ironclad's surgeon, Dinwiddie Phillips, later said, quote, I found all her stanchions, iron railings, boat davits, and light work of every description swept away, her smokestack cut to pieces, two guns without muzzles, and ninety-eight indentations on her plating showing where heavy iron shot had struck but glanced off without doing any injury. End quote. Besides all of that, water was also leaking in through a crack in the ship's bow, caused when the iron ram had been wrenched off the day before when the Virginia had backed away from the Cumberland after ramming her. So the Confederate ironclad hadn't exactly emerged unscathed from her battle with the Union blockading squadron. But despite the battering she'd received on Saturday, the Virginia was still essentially intact and ready, willing, and able to renew the contest with the Yankee ships out in the roadstead. And so the ironclad's crew ate breakfast, which included, quote, two jiggers of whiskey, end quote, and then officers and men prepared for action. The rebels were confident that when they steamed back out into Hampton Roads that morning, the stranded Minnesota and any other federal ships their big ironclad would engage should be easy victories. Because of fickle telegraph communication with Fort Monroe, News of the disaster that had befallen the Union blockading squadron at Hampton Roads on Saturday didn't reach Washington until Sunday morning. That morning, Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy, was in his office when an aide rushed in with a telegram telling of the Confederate ironclad's appearance the day before and of the defeat she'd inflicted on the blockading squadron. Word of the disaster had also reached the White House, and just as Wells finished reading the dispatch, a message arrived from the president, who was calling an immediate cabinet meeting to deal with the emergency. Wells hurried over to the executive mansion to find that Secretary of State William Seward, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase were already there. Wells found that all of them were alarmed by the news from Hampton Roads. 
According to Lincoln's secretary, John Hay, Stanton was especially wound up. Hay said the Secretary of War, quote, was fearfully stampeded. He said they would capture our fleet, take Fort Monroe, be in Washington before night, end quote. Wells had never been on the best terms with Stanton, and now he found the Secretary of War to be, quote, inexpressibly ludicrous, end quote. Well, while an upset Stanton paced back and forth in the cabinet room, Wells remained calm, cool, and collected, and this only seemed to increase the Secretary of War's agitation. While going on about how the rebel ironclad would wreck the Union fleet and destroy the coastal cities of the North, Stanton, from time to time, would go over to a window that looked out on the Potomac, and as if he was expected to see the enemy warship steaming up the river at any moment. Indeed, at one point he declared, quote, Not unlikely we shall have a shell or cannonball from her guns in the White House before we leave this room. Even Abraham Lincoln was unusually troubled, and all the men in the room wanted to know what the Navy planned to do to stop this seemingly unstoppable rebel monster. Gideon Wells told them that the Monitor was on its way to Hampton Roads, and then also assured them that, at any rate, the Confederate ironclad drew too much water to allow her to come up the Potomac and threaten Washington. Seward seemed to take heart at what Wells said, but Stanton did not. He shot questions at Wells about the size and armament of the Monitor, and when the Secretary of the Navy said that the Union ironclad carried two guns, Stanton abruptly turned away with a look Wells described as one of, quote, amazement, contempt, and distress. The Secretary of War refused to believe Wells and the Navy actually expected a two-gun experimental ship to stop the rebel monster that had already wrecked a federal fleet. But through all of Stanton's scolding and raving, Gideon Wells remained calm and composed. After the meeting broke up, Stanton sent panicky telegrams to some northern governors, advising them of the measures they ought to take to prepare to defend their coastal cities against the rampaging Confederate ironclad. The Secretary of War also sent into motion a plan to sink barges heavily loaded with stone in the Potomac below Washington to obstruct the Virginia's passage. When a scornful Wells pointed out that the sunken barges would not only prevent the Virginia from coming up the river, but would also obstruct the navigation of Union shipping, Abraham Lincoln ordered Stanton not to sink the barges until the enemy ironclad was actually approaching. Some weeks later, Lincoln, Stanton, and others were on a boat going downriver when they passed a line of barges along the shore of the Potomac, and seeing them, the president playfully declared, quote, there is Stanton's Navy, as useless as the paps of a man to a sucking child. There may be some show to amuse the child, but they are good for nothing for service. Meanwhile, the Monitor, the Union Navy's answer to the Confederate ironclad, had arrived at Hampton Roads Saturday night after a harrowing journey down the coast from New York. After her arrival, the Monitor was ordered to anchor alongside the still-stranded Minnesota. And so that's where she was as the sky began to lighten on Sunday morning, March 9th. No one aboard the just-arrived Monitor had got more than a few hours of sleep in the last three days, but with battle imminent, the Union Ironclad's commander, Lieutenant John Worden, ordered his tired men to breakfast, then prepared his ship for action. The Virginia was anchored off Sewell's Point, 
but a heavy bank of fog lay over Hampton Roads. Lieutenant Catsby Ap R. Jones was now commanding the Confederate ironclad in place of the wounded Franklin Buchanan, and before proceeding out into the roadstead, Jones decided to wait until the tide had risen and the fog dispersed. And so the Virginia remained on station off Sewell's Point, while the side-wheel gunboats Patrick Henry and Jamestown and a tug, the teaser, joined her. By eight o'clock, conditions had improved, and the ironclad weighed anchor, and preceded by the two gunboats, steamed toward the stranded Minnesota, which lay two miles away. As the Virginia steamed north into the roads, Jones and the other rebels suddenly saw that the Minnesota was not alone. According to William C. Davis, in his book, Duel Between the First Ironclads, Despite Jones's later claims that he knew the Monitor had arrived thanks to a pilot spotting her in the light of the burning Congress the night before, it's obvious that the presence of the Union ironclad actually took the Confederates completely by surprise on Sunday morning. Aboard the rebel gunboat, Patrick Henry, one of her officers, remembered seeing that next to the Minnesota lay, quote, "...such a craft as the eyes of a seaman never looked upon before." an immense shingle floating in the water with a gigantic cheese box rising from its center. No sails, no smokestack, no guns. What could it be? End quote. Some of the Confederates guessed that the strange craft was the rumored Federal ironclad, and Lieutenant Jones, after reaching that conclusion, no doubt spoke for many of the rebels when he noted that, quote, she could not possibly have made her appearance at a more inopportune time. End quote. But there were those on the opposite shore of the roadstead that morning who might have disagreed with Jones. Many of the Federals awoke that morning and got their first glimpse of the Monitor as she lay at anchor next to the much larger Minnesota. One of the Union soldiers on the shore later recalled, quote, No one in our camp seemed to know what it was or how it came there, but at last it was conceded that it must be the strange new ironclad which we heard was being built in New York. She seemed so small and trifling that we feared she would only constitute additional prey for the Leviathan, end quote. And one of the sailors who had escaped from the Congress the day before confessed, quote, To tell the truth, we did not have much faith in the Monitor. The captain of the stranded Minnesota also did not have much faith in the Monitor. After the Virginia was spotted steaming north from Sewell's Point, Worden called up to the frigate's commander, Van Brunt, and asked what he intended to do. There was still perhaps a half hour before the enemy ironclad reached them, and Van Brunt answered that he still hoped to float his ship, but if not, he would destroy her to prevent the rebels from capturing her. Worden promised, I will stand by you to the last if I can help you. But the skeptical Van Brunt replied that the monitor could do nothing to help. The frigate's commander later admitted that, quote, the idea of assistance or protection being offered to the huge thing by the little pygmy at her side seemed absolutely ridiculous. There is some dispute over who fired the first shot that morning, the Virginia or the Minnesota, but it seems as if that honor might actually go to the Virginia. William Keeler, the monitor's paymaster, was watching from the ironclad's deck and reported that the Virginia fired from long range and, quote, a shell howled over our heads and crashed into the side of the Minnesota, end quote. After the enemy vessel opened fire, Worden ordered everyone on the monitor below. It was not quite 8.30. Worden later said, quote, 
I got underway as soon as possible and stood directly for her with the crew at quarters in order to meet and engage her as far from the Minnesota as possible. In the monitor's turret, 21-year-old Lieutenant Samuel Green supervised the loading of the big Dahlgrens with solid shot. Each gun was crewed by eight men. Hardly any of them could tell what was going on outside since the view out the gun ports was extremely restricted by the cannon barrels. In his book, Hampton Roads, 1862, First Clash of the Ironclads, Angus Constam explains, quote, The only other viewpoint on the monitor was the pilot house, where the pilot, Samuel Howard, and the quartermaster, Peter Williams, accompanied Lieutenant Worden. Since the speaking tube linking the turret to the pilot house had broken down, Worden in the pilot house and Green in the turret could only communicate by message carriers. Paymaster Keeler volunteered to maintain the link between the two parts of the ship. He was assisted by Captain's clerk, Daniel Toffey. Green called down, Paymaster, ask the captain if I shall fire. The reply came back, Tell Mr. Green not to fire till I give the word to be cool and deliberate, to take sure aim, and not to waste a shot. End quote. As the two ironclads approached one another, the Virginia's escorts peeled away and returned to Sewell's Point. Since the monitor couldn't fire directly ahead because of where the pilot house projected above the deck, when the two ships were within a hundred yards of each other, Worden turned the Union ironclad so that her bow faced away from the Virginia and then gave the order to open fire. As the monitor opened fire, Lieutenant Jones was in the process of turning the Virginia so that she presented her broadside to the Federal ship. Both ships were now running parallel to each other, but headed in opposite directions, the monitor facing west and the Virginia east. According to Green, when the Virginia opened fire on the monitor, quote, it was a rattling broadside. The turret and other parts of the ship were heavily struck, but the shots did not penetrate. The tower was intact, and it continued to revolve. A look of confidence passed over the men's faces, and we believe the Merrimack would not repeat the work she had accomplished the day before, end quote. Although the Virginia maintained a heavy rate of fire, her shot seemed incapable of damaging the Yankee ironclad. It quickly became apparent to the Confederates that their ship had met her match. This frustrated Jones to no end, and he later recalled, quote, She and her turret appeared to be in perfect control. Her light draft enabled her to move about us at pleasure. She once took position for a short while where we could not bring a gun to bear on her, end quote. Jones would have been relieved to know that during the battle, the big Dahlgrens on the monitor were firing at his ship using a reduced charge of powder. You see, the cannon on the Federal ironclad were only using two-thirds of the normal charge as a safety precaution, since the gun's inventor, Captain John Dahlgren, was concerned the weapons could burst if fired using the larger charge for prolonged periods. Subsequent tests, however, showed that the guns were perfectly safe and reliable using the larger charges. If that had been known on the day of the battle, and if the monitor had been using full charges of gunpowder, her shots might have had more chance of penetrating the Virginia's lighter armor. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The Confederate Ironclad's chief engineer, H. Ashton Ramsey, said that, quote, We hovered about each other in spirals, gradually contracting the circuits until we were within point-blank range, but our shell glanced from the monitor's turret just as hers did from our sloping sides, end quote. To the observers on the stranded Minnesota and to the spectators lining the shores of Hampton Roads, the duel between the two ironclads appeared ferocious. A soldier of the 10th New York Infantry Regiment thought, quote, Truly this odd little craft was no match for this great monster. They closed in, however, and a curtain of smoke settled down over the scene. With breathless suspense we listened to this firing, but could see nothing for the clouds of smoke. We heard the whistle of shells and the shot, and we could recognize the shots of the monitor. One takes no note of time under such circumstances. How long that first round lasted before the firing ceased, I have no idea. When the thunder ceased, oh, we thought the cheese box had gone to the bottom. Gradually the smoke lifted, and there lay the two antagonists, backing, filling, and jockeying for position, and then added again, and again the cloud of smoke which settled over their struggle hid them from view. End quote. On the monitor, the problem of communication between the turret and the pilot house was proving frustrating. However quickly messages could be relayed from one position to another by Keeler and Toffee, it was still too slow to be able to react to events with any degree of speed. Adding to the problem was that neither the paymaster nor captain's clerk were real sailors or gunners, and so they lacked the technical vocabulary necessary to perform their job properly. As Lieutenant Green later explained, quote, The situation was novel. A vessel of war was engaged in desperate combat with a powerful foe. The captain commanding and guiding was enclosed in one place, and the executive officer working and fighting the guns was shut up in another, end quote. Green and the other 17 men in the monitor's turret were closed up inside a smoke-filled metal box 20 feet in diameter, in which most of the space was taken up by two massive guns. Conditions were as bad, if not worse, on the Virginia. 
Chief Engineer Ramsey later recalled, quote, On our gun deck, all was bustle, smoke, grimy figures, and stern commands, while down in the engine and boiler rooms, the sixteen furnaces were belching out fire and smoke. The noise of the crackling, roaring fires, escaping steam, and the loud and labored pulsations of the engines, together with the roar of battle above, and the thud and vibration of the huge masses of iron which were hurled against us, produced a scene and sound to be compared only with a poet's picture of the lower regions. End quote. After two hours of dueling, both captains were beginning to realize that they had little chance of destroying their opponent through gunfire alone. And so, as the battle continued, instead of a gunnery contest between two warships steaming in circles around each other, around 11 a.m., both Jones and Worden began to try other tricks to damage their opponent. Since the Monitor had a huge edge in maneuverability over the big, ungainly rebel ship, Worden decided to try to use that advantage and attempt to ram the stern of the Virginia, hoping to damage her propeller or rudder and leave her disabled. Worden soon saw his chance, and the Monitor dashed at the Virginia's stern, but missed crashing into the rebel ship by just two feet. Jones also decided to try a new tactic, and he steered the Virginia toward the Minnesota, but in attempting to close on the stranded frigate, the Virginia herself ran aground. This was a potential disaster for the Confederates, and once Worden realized what had happened to his adversary, he was quick to take advantage of the situation. He maneuvered the monitor close alongside the Virginia in a blind spot where the rebel ship's guns couldn't touch him, and from there the Union ironclad began to pound the Virginia. By concentrating her fire on one section of the Virginia's casemate, the monitor began to tear away at the rebel ship's armor and to inflict damage on the timber backing underneath the iron plating. Again, it's worth noting that had the monitor's guns been using full charges of powder, her shots might have really done some significant damage to the Virginia. With the Virginia aground and being pounded at close range by the Monitor, Chief Engineer Ramsey resorted to desperate measures to free his ship. He explained that, quote, We lashed down the safety valves, heaping quick-burning combustibles into the already raging fires, and brought the boilers to a pressure that would be unsafe under ordinary circumstances. The propeller churned the mud and water furiously, but the ship did not stir. We piled on oiled cotton waste, splits of wood, anything that would burn faster than coal. It seemed impossible that the boilers could stand the pressure we were crowding upon them. Just as we were beginning to despair, there was a perceptible movement, and the Merrimack slowly dragged herself off the shoal by main strength. We were saved. End quote. By straining the engines and boilers far beyond what was safe, Ramsey had managed to develop enough reverse thrust to move the Virginia back into deeper water. With the Virginia back in deeper water, Lieutenant Jones decided he would try to ram the monitor. That tactic had been successful the day before when the Confederate ironclad had rammed the Cumberland, but the Cumberland had been a stationary target. Since the Virginia was, as one sailor aboarder put it, as unwieldy as Noah's Ark, it took Jones the better part of an hour before he finally managed to get his ship into a position to ram the monitor. At the last moment, though, Worden managed to turn the more nimble monitor so that the rebel ironclad only struck her a glancing blow. Also at the last moment, Jones had ordered the Virginia's engines reversed, which lessened the impact. So although the bigger Virginia spun the smaller monitor around like a top, 
the only damage to the Federal ironclad was a dent in her hull, while on the Confederate ship, the leaking in the bow, where the ram had been lost the day before, worsened. Jones was now forced to rig pumps to deal with the water coming in. Unsuccessful in his attempt to run down the monitor, Jones considered boarding the enemy vessel, and a group of volunteers was organized to be led by Captain Reuben Tom, commander of the Virginia's Marines. The Confederates planned to jump on board the monitor, use coats to obscure the view out the slits on the enemy vessel's pilot house, and jam the revolving turret with metal spikes. Aboard the monitor, Worden saw the rebel boarding party readying itself, and he ordered Green to load the Union ironclad's guns with deadly canister. But then the monitor drew away from the Virginia, and the Confederates' opportunity passed. It was now around noon. Jones once again edged the Virginia toward the Minnesota, sending shells into the stranded frigate. To protect the Minnesota, the monitor once again closed with the Virginia, Worden again came within a hair's breadth of ramming the stern of the rebel ironclad, but then as the monitor slid by the Virginia, a shot slammed into the monitor's pilot house. The explosion blinded Worden, who was peering out one of the vision slits in the armor when the shell hit. Despite the flash of light and cloud of smoke, miraculously the helmsman was unhurt, and Worden, after announcing that he was blinded and calling for help, ordered the helmsman to alter course and take the monitor into shallower water where the Virginia couldn't follow. When he received word that Worden had been wounded, Lieutenant Green left the turret, quickly made his way forward to the damaged pilot house, and assumed command. As he was being carried below, Worden begged Green to, quote, Do not mind me. Save the Minnesota if you can, end quote. But by the time Green got the monitor turned around, he saw that the Virginia was steaming away back south towards Sewell's Point. That was because when Jones saw the monitor abruptly head into shallower water, he had guessed something was amiss. And although he wasn't sure exactly what the Union ironclad was up to, he decided to take the opportunity to once again turn the Virginia toward the Minnesota. But the pilots aboard the Virginia warned Jones that with the tide receding and the water level dropping, it was no longer safe for them to stay out in the roads any longer. And so about half past noon, the big Confederate ironclad turned away from the Minnesota and steamed back to the south. The Battle of Hampton Roads was over. The four-hour battle between the ironclads had ended in a stalemate. The Monitor had been hit 23 times and the Virginia 20 times. Neither ship was all that badly damaged by the other's fire during the engagement. Although John Worden's face was badly scarred, he survived and eventually regained his eyesight. There were no other casualties on March 9th on either ironclad. In his book, The Civil War at Sea, Craig Simons writes that, quote, Historians have noted the revolutionary character of this fight between ironclad warships. In the main, they have concluded that the outcome was essentially a draw because neither vessel managed to inflict any serious damage on the other. In fact, however, measured in strategic terms, there was a clear winner, for the Monitor succeeded in halting the rampage of the Virginia, and that allowed the Union Navy to remain in control of Hampton Roads. And then James McPherson, in his book, War on the Waters, the Union and Confederate Navies, 1861-1865, to 1865, says, quote, 
Whether the Virginia or Monitor won this particular showdown was less important, perhaps, than the symbolism of the battle as a victory of the future over the past. The graceful frigates and powerful line-of-battle ships with their towering masts and sturdy oak timbers would gradually fade into history and legend. March 9, 1862 witnessed a giant step in the revolution in naval warfare begun a generation earlier in the application of steam power to warships. Many contemporaries recognized as much, including the captain of the USS Minnesota, who had watched with growing astonishment as the little monitor with its two guns saved his 40-gun frigate. Gun after gun was fired by the monitor, he would write in his official report, which was returned with whole broadsides by the rebels, with no more effect, apparently, than so many pebblestones thrown by a child, clearly establishing that wooden vessels cannot contend successfully with ironclad ones. The success of the original Monitor led to Monitor Mania in the Federal Navy, and Erickson's design served as the prototype for the numerous other Monitor-type vessels the North built during the Civil War. Twenty-one seagoing vessels and seven brownwater ships were commissioned and saw service. And then the Confederacy, lacking the industrial capacity of the North, made only one attempt to build a Monitor-type ironclad, that occurred in Georgia in early 1865, and as planned, the vessel would have carried two 11-inch guns and a turret, but the war ended before it could be completed. And so the South, for the most part, concentrated its efforts during the war on the construction of a series of casemated ironclads, all of which were based on the original design of the Virginia. Such Confederate casemated ironclads included the Atlanta, the Arkansas, and the Tennessee. As for the Virginia, her very presence at Hampton Roads ended up exerting an influence on the course of George McClellan's Peninsula Campaign, which was launched just a week or so after the battle between the two ironclads. Despite the fact she had been checked by the Monitor, the Virginia still proved to be a complicating factor in McClellan's plans, since the rebel ship threatened the Union's access to the James River. And so, just by her continued existence, the Virginia became the great naval boogeyman of the Peninsula Campaign. On April 11th, the wounded Franklin Buchanan's successor, Josiah Tatnall, took the Virginia out again, seeking to draw the Monitor into battle. But the Union ironclad refused to oblige, instead remaining under the protection of Fort Monroe's heavy guns. A month later, on May 10th, threatened by a division-sized Union force that landed nearby, the Confederates evacuated Norfolk. The Virginia was moored off Sewell's Point when Tatnall learned of the loss of Norfolk and the Gosport Navy Yard. Without a base anymore, he tried to get the big ironclad up the James toward Richmond by lightening it, even resorting to taking off most of the ship's armor, but the Virginia's draft was still too great to get up the river. In the end, to keep her from being captured by the Yankees, Tatnall had no choice but to scuttle her, and so her crew ran the CSS Virginia aground off Craney Island, and there, on May 11th, she was blown up. With the Virginia finally out of the picture, the way to Richmond by way of the James seemed to be wide open, and the Union Navy lost no time in launching an expedition up the river. 
On May 15th, led by the Monitor and the USS Galena, one of the other experimental ironclads that had been ordered by the Navy, the Federal Flotilla steamed upriver, but they were halted at Drury's Bluff, eight miles from Richmond, where the rebels had erected shore batteries where the James took a sharp bend and narrowed. Some of the crewmen from the scuttled Virginia arrived just in time to help man the guns at Drury's Bluff and turn back the Union ships. The Monitor remained in the area throughout the Peninsula Campaign and helped cover the retreat of the Army of the Potomac in July after McClellan was defeated by Robert E. Lee in the Seven Days Battles. Later in the year, on Christmas Day in fact, the officer then commanding the ironclad, Commander John P. Bankhead, received orders to steam south and join the Union Naval Squadron blockading Wilmington, North Carolina. Towed by the sidewheel steamer USS Rhode Island, the Monitor reached Cape Hatteras before she was overtaken by a storm, and by late evening of December 30th, it became clear the ironclad was foundering in the heavy seas. The Rhode Island was called upon to send boats to rescue the Monitor's crew, and Bankhead gave the order to abandon the sinking ironclad. But when the Monitor went down shortly after midnight, she took four officers and twelve seamen down with her. The Monitor sank in about 220 feet of water southeast of Cape Hatteras, but for more than a century the exact resting place of the famous ironclad remained a mystery. But then in 1973, a team of scientists from Duke University used sonar imaging to discover the resting place of the famous ironclad. In 1975, the Monitor officially became the U.S.'s first National Marine Sanctuary. But then, after scientists expressed concerns about the stability of the wreck, which had come to rest upside down, plans were laid to ease the 120-ton turret out from beneath the hull and raise it to the surface to preserve it. After much work and preparation, the Monitor's turret was raised to the surface on August 5, 2002. It is now located in a 90,000-gallon tank of treatment solution undergoing conservation work in a state-of-the-art facility at the Mariner's Museum at Newport News, Virginia. It's estimated the turret will need to undergo 15 more years of conservation work before it will be stable enough for public display. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Duel Between the First Ironclads by William C. Davis. In some ways, we've saved the best for last with this series of episodes, since Duel Between the First Ironclads, even though it came out back in 1975, is still the best overall account of the famous battle between the Virginia and the Monitor that we've found. So we absolutely recommend you pick it up for your Civil War library, if it's not already sitting on your bookshelf. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations if you go to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Just a reminder that yesterday we released the sixth members episode, and we've used this month's episodes to look in more detail at Abraham Lincoln's activities in 1861 after the start of the war. In this show, we talked about Lincoln's views on emancipation and race, and then we revisited the First Battle of Manassas. 
Yeah, and Tracy and I are enjoying putting together these members' episodes, and so a big thank you to the members of the StrawFit Brigade for their support. And then thanks to all of you guys for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next up, we'll start to look at the Burnside Expedition, that is the amphibious operations Ambrose Burnside led against the North Carolina coast in the spring of 1862. So that'll start next week, but until then, take care. Thanks everyone. Bye.